Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hello and welcome to the In For A Penny podcast. I'm Mark Schoffman, a freelance personal finance journalist, and I'm joined by my financial planner friend, Joshua Gersler, who runs an advisory business called The Orchard Practice. Hello. If you'd like to know a little bit more about us, you can check me out at www.cavendishcontent.com and josh at www.topfs.co.uk. Each episode, we aim to give our perspective on the world of finance and money, and discuss some of the issues that crop up in business as well as everyday life. We hope that you'll learn something from our podcast as well as have some fun too. Hi, thank you for downloading the latest episode of the Infra Penny podcast. Do you want to say hello, Josh? How are you? Hello, Josh. How are you? <laughs> How is life? Life's good, mate. Life's really yeah. good. Yeah, it's uh, living the dream. So lockdown is not yet eased. This no. was a week where the government's exit strategy was revealed to not be so much of an exit, more of a slow crawl out of a slight crevice of light shining Locks through it. a very dark cave. Locks it. Yeah. Which is sort of hard for some people, I guess. Living with, I don't know, you're lo- locked in with your partners, kids. I think some people are doing well. Some people are struggling. Hmm. So I thought we're going we're gonna to look into that a bit on this episode. Um, and talk about divorce, which isn't necessarily the most upbeat subject, but I think it's good to be prepared. Yeah. Yeah. So I've done a bit of uh, research because obviously married couples will have been spending a lot of time together during lockdown. And as you said, it'll bring some more, some closer. And for some, it will bring to the fore the frustrations, like being annoyed with partners who put their feet on the table is that you or loudly. your wife? She wouldn't dare put her feet on the table. And who chews loudly, you or her? Neither of us. My wife is absolutely perfect. This episode is not aimed at her. We're on, a, we're on a Zoom uh, meeting, or not meeting, a Zoom thing on Sunday night with some friends playing games. And uh, at one point, one of the other people said, why have you muted yourself? Yeah, I said, we, we were arguing at that point. I said, we're just having an argument. <laughs> we'll be off mute in a minute. <laughs> But you're obviously doing well. You're not, you know, your marriage is surviving. Yeah, we're good. We're good. good. Uh, she told me to say that. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm happy. There was a spike in divorce applications in China after it lifted its lockdown restrictions earlier this year. So I don't know, some couples may need to watch out. And there has been some anecdotal evidence of increased divorce quir- inquiries in the UK so far. So um, I'm going to try and dig into that. So we are joined by Charlotte Coyle, a senior associate in the family team at law firm Goodman Derrick, to talk through the financial practicalities of getting divorced. Hello. Hi, Hi Mark. Hi, Josh. Hello, Charlotte. Hello. Thank you for joining us. So let's start with you guys. Have you seen an increase in inquiries about divorces during lockdown? I mean, this is definitely a hot topic at the moment. Like you said, it's being commented in the media. Um, that prediction among divorce lies is that post-lockdown, it's very likely that the divorce rates will rise. I mean, personally, I've seen um, and received several new inquiries since lockdown, um, but I wouldn't necessarily attribute that to a result of, of obviously the lockdown itself. I would say it was more a majority of these in relation to kind of arranging child contact and working out the logistics. Um, but without seeing any statistical evidence, obviously you said about China, there's a huge spike 
we haven't yet seen that but I think there could potentially be a peak after lockdown's lifted I mean if relationships are already quite tense and fraught then a long time of confinement together will definitely force any underlying cracks to the surface um I mean living with anyone for this length of time tests the most strongest relationships so there'll in my opinion be a high possibility that we could see an increase for sure hmm. It's a bit of a shame, really, isn't it? That uh, yeah. it's supposed to be a time where you can spend more quality time with your family, but that it, it does lead to problems rather than happiness. Definitely, I would agree. I think any kind of long periods, I mean, we do see a slight increase post Christmas and post summer. I mean, whether or not that's a coincidence, I don't know. But I mean, any long period with someone that you're finding difficult to to get on with in the first place can just obviously exacerbate the situation um but yeah it's a shame so i guess people associate the point that you get to divorce with acrimony and a lot of arguments and kind of mm. break, breaking point for most people is there such thing as an amicable divorce um i've seen it a couple of times there's i mean it's great when you hear couples ever reached an agreement between themselves and they haven't had the need of including solicitors in negotiating or dealing with any kind of issues of dispute but I mean an amical divorce whether or not that exists is another thing I think I would be extremely cautious maybe it's just the lawyer inside me that even if an agreement had been made amicably um, between you and your ex-partner I would even suggest that they go and see a solicitor anyway just to look over the terms of the agreement because you want to make sure that you've not missed anything and then whether or not be a practical point in terms of form filling um or kind of looking over an overall settlement that they've agreed between themselves you want another kind of set of set of eyes to look over that and see if it's fair and reasonable um because even though you've reached an agreement between yourself there's nothing stopping you seeking kind of independent advice just to have another look through and make sure it's all in the best interests of of that person because you don't know whether or not you've agreed to something that's not necessarily fair in the whole scheme of things but i do um i have seen it a couple of times but they've always come to me just to finalize everything into an order make sure it's all kind of the i's dotted and t's across i guess the risk is as soon as you start mentioning lawyers people mm. get, get cagey don't they definitely i think if you've reached an agreement between you and your ex-partner that's great but you're obviously going to be looking after number one and making sure that you're looked after and if there's children involved as well you want to make sure their interests are served in the most appropriate way so i think there's no harm in mentioning the l word the lawyer and just approaching them just to even look over the agreement that you've reached just to make sure to double double check um so how do fees typically work charlotte what do people need to think about when they speaks to their solicitor in terms of costs so from an amicable point of view if you've come to an agreement you just want someone to simply look over you can ask the solicitor whether or not they've got an hourly fee um charge that they would obviously charge out with looking over the document and finalizing that kind of um work for them or if they obviously want to instruct the solicitor from the get-go and I'd ask them to advise and negotiate a settlement deal with any issues regarding contacts etc and then they'd ask for kind of an estimate of costs and based on I mean every case is completely different um, so it would just depend on that particular case but solicitors would most likely give them a, a fee estimate of how much roughly it would be so they could budget that within the proceedings 
So do people ever come to you with with a disagreement and then they see the costs and suddenly realise it may be better to be amicable? Yeah, completely. I think a lot of people, um, I mean, it depends on what client, but if they have a point that they really want to run and you're obviously asking and telling them and advising that it's unrealistic expectations that they've set or advising them on the law, um, they might necessarily still want to run with it, knowing the cost implications, or um, they might just say, okay, I'll kind of deal with that in another way or try and um, leave that point. If, if things are going amicably, how, how, can, how can assets be split fairly? So in terms of splitting assets, I mean, everything has been dealt with case by case and there's no standard formula for kind of calculating the appropriate financial provision on divorce. Um, if you've reached an agreement amicably, you should be looking at um, factors that are included within the marriage. So the court uses um, Section 25 of the Matrimonial Causes Act 1973 as kind of the the range of factors that need to be taken into consideration when calculating and distributing the party's available resources. So um, they'll first consider obviously the welfare of any child under the age of 18 and then they'll look to section 25 um, factors, for example, the capital and income resources of both of them, um, financial needs, standards of living, ages, length of marriage, stuff like um, contributions will also be additional factors in conduct so they'll take into consideration all of those factors and um, the starting point I mean will always be that the assets will be divided equally and they'll use guiding principles such as kind of equal sharing and needs compensation as principles to apply um, in reaching a kind of a fair outcome between them both so for example the, the matrimonial home that's normally considered the matrimonial asset in a lot of cases that we see. That's the main source of kind of, that's the main asset that they have. So divide it equally between the parties, even if it was owned by one of them before the marriage could be seen as an equal and fair division of assets. Um, Does that mean you always have to sell a property if you're going to get divorced? No, no, not necessarily. I mean, that when the scenarios are the equal division of assets may not meet kind of both the needs of both the parties for example when um for example a wife might be living in a property with the children but there's not enough assets for for example the husband to rehouse um they would in that case apply the sharing principle um with a reallocation of assets in the future for example they might have a, a charge on the property and they might agree for that property to be sold once the children have reached 18. Um, and then that's when the assets are kind of distri distributed. So one party might have a deferred interest in the matrimonial home um, at that point. So you can be creative. There's lots of, I mean, every case is completely different and what the needs are of that family and how they're going to divide the assets up. But that's usually one example of when the children are quite young, there's not enough, not enough assets to meet the needs of both parties is that they can, um, one party stays in the property with the children and then it's sold. Charlotte, we sometimes have clients come to us um, looking for mortgages to buy properties. Mm. So let's use an example. Let's say the, the wife and the children got to stay in the matrimonial home, but mm. for, whatever reason the husband or the ex-husband has had to stay on the mortgage because the mm. wife can't afford it in her name. 
Um, that sometimes stops the husband being able to get a mortgage in his own right for a new property. So can that ever be discussed and factored in before the divorce to make sure it's not a problem for the husband? Yeah, that's definitely something we would advise at the very beginning is to find out obviously mortgage capacities of both parties and to serve notice on the mortgage company to see what their kind of their stance of stance is on that kind of scenario. Like you said, a lot of mortgage companies will not allow um, one party to kind of be released from the from the mortgage, despite it being that one party remains there with the children. But that is definitely a scenario that we face and a lot of our clients have difficulty in then rehousing um, or obviously, like you said, finding a, another mortgage that they can have. What other assets are considered? As part of the disclosure exercise, both parties will have to um, complete something called a form E, whether or not that's done by voluntary or um, by court-managed direction. You share disclosure with each other. So you include your assets, liabilities, income and um, expenditure and within that you gather what is considered in the matrimonial pot which is assets that both parties have accrued prior and including within the marriage and that's all kind of put into a schedule and everything's kind of looked at um i mean it depends completely on needs but where significant matrimonial finances assets are generated by a special contribution by one party um they can be looked at as well. So if needs aren't met, they can look to other other assets, if that makes sense. So um, possibly something that they've got in their sole name that's not in shared names, for example. That's I've always liked the um, I've always liked the the form E. I know it's two words, form and the letter E, but in my mind, it's uh, F O R M Y. Could you just fill in this little form E for me? It just yeah, sounds more uh, very... more enjoyable for me. <laughs> Um, it's a very very big document yeah how do you um make sure that your other half is being honest and submitting all the information in the form because if it's a a divorce that's gone a bit bitter um Mm. how can you make sure that's the case yeah completely i mean a lot of my clients face this at, at the disclosure point is that one party fails to be frank and and open about their assets and where they where their assets are. Um, the most important thing to do is to try and raise questions, um, whether or not that's court managed. So when I say court managed, I mean if there are form A being issued and there's directions for a questionnaire to be raised. If there hasn't had that, if they haven't had that direction um, by way of the form A, they can ask the other side whether or not they'd be willing to answer a questionnaire and within that questionnaire you would ask specific questions about um kind of the gaps in the for me or if one client knows about something that they haven't put in there for me then you can raise something called a questionnaire and if they still haven't completed or um provided any of the information then they would there's something called a schedule of deficiencies but i mean it just racks up costs so it's not in the best interest of either party to be going around that kind of exercise and trying to get them to disclose i think the most is non-disclosure illegal um it is uh it's not necessarily illegal but it is definitely frowned upon so if you if the divorce goes through and then afterwards you find out that your ex forgot to tell you they've got another million pounds sitting in the bank Mm. do you have any recourse yes this actually happened in, in a previous case i was dealing with was that we reached a final 
agreement, everything was settled. And then the um, one of the parties found out that the ex-spouse had actually been hiding um, a considerable amount of assets in his name. So we then made an application to vary the order. So if you do have evidence or find out post-final order, you can make an application to vary and ask the court to consider and reconsider the is, um, is there a limit on, made. Is there a limit on that? Because what, what if your ex-partner wins the lottery, I don't know, two weeks after you get divorced? Gutted. No, that wouldn't be taken into account post because the final settlement is up until that stage. Once the final order has been made, that's it. You can't then go back for a second bite of the cherry almost once. But if there has been failure to disclose any kind of information during the proceedings, then you can apply to vary. Or, for example, if your needs change, and that's in terms of maintenance and those aspects that you can go back and go back and apply. So can you tell us a bit about um, often in a relationship, there's not equality in terms of earnings. So a husband and wife might be earning different amounts. One might be a bigger earner than the other. How does that get factored into the divorce? So um, that can be looked at by way of maintenance. So sometimes um, the court awards maintenance for a fixed period of time, for example, to enable a pay to become self-sufficient. So um, if one party earns less than the other party or indeed have been staying at home looking after the children, for example, and doesn't have the earning capacity that the other party might have, um, the pay might, might apply to extend the term, for example, if they're unable to obtain employment um, to support themselves. So that's a way that the court might award a level of maintenance to them so that they can, um, their needs can be met and their standard of living during the marriage could be kind of upheld during that period. Will it always be taken into account to make sure that the person paying the maintenance still has enough money for themselves? So by that, I mean, would they ever get asked to pay more than they're bringing in? So when the matter of maintenance is discussed, you obviously through the formy or through the disclosure, you'll find out their, their income and outgoings, what expenditure they are paying. And that's kind of dealt with as part of the calculation. So they would never be able to kind of, be awarded something that is kind of impossible they're not going to be able to to pay okay and then post settlement what happens if the person paying the maintenance um either loses their job um salary goes down or salary goes up does the maintenance get changed in that situation yes so that was a a query that i had recently actually and that's um that obviously due to the coronavirus pandemic people aren't being paid the same kind of salary so their income's not the same so whether or not they can apply to vary maintenance um and that's definitely something that um they would be able to do they'd obviously have to show evidence to say that they've made every effort possible to reduce any other outgoings um and you'd have to present to the court um obviously what's changed evidence of that um and based on that it's because it's all individual everything's dealt with case by case and the judge would look at evidence before it to say your income's obviously reduced significantly and in line with what you're paying maintenance wise that can be reduced as well is there a period that the maintenance lasts for typically so maintenance is a, an umbrella term so that includes both spousal and child maintenance um, so spouse maintenance, for example, will be achieved if there's insufficient assets to achieve a clean break. Um, and that may be that one party has to pay ongoing maintenance to the other. And that generally ceases when one of the following occurs, and that could be when a, 
uh, that party remarries or that party dies um, or if there's a further order of the court. Um, in terms of child maintenance, that is a completely separate issue and that's dealt with through the child maintenance service. They have kind of the primary jurisdiction of that and they assess um, child maintenance that should be paid by the non-resident party. Um, and that will obviously seize upon the child reaching 18. I mean, both parties can agree to pay um, an additional source of funds on top of that, but it's usually when the, part, when the child reaches 18 that those child maintenance payments start. We sometimes have clients come to us um, looking to protect the maintenance. So um, if the wife is the one paying the maintenance, the husband mm. might decide to take out a life insurance policy on the wife's life so mm. that if she dies, that the family can still continue to receive the income that she was paying to them. Yes, I think that's uh, definitely advisable to do so. Yeah. What about your pension? Where does that come into all of this? So pensions would be taken into consideration as well. Um, we obviously look at both parties to see if there is pensions on both sides and um, we instruct um, actuaries and specialists kind of come in and advise upon that and how to look at that as a way of a sharing within the matrimonial finances. And there are usually uh, a few different ways you can split a pension. Do you want to tell us a bit about those? Yeah, there can be a pension sharing order made in respect to the finances. Um, again, it, it's all dependent on case by case. Um, and that's obviously when we ask for an actuary to come in and advise about the best way to do that and to ensure that there's um, sharing there as well. And then you've got uh, earmarking, I understand, is another option so rather than share the pensions you just earmark a portion of it to one person's needs and they might get other assets instead mm -hmm. that's correct yes so you can apportion a percentage of one person's pension to the other when you're saying is that as in the pension payout that when you retire was that the savings bit? mark some, sometimes um for us i've got some clients getting divorced at the moment and um, what they're doing is they're getting a valuation of the pensions today for their defined contribution pensions. And that's being included in the total assets and then just split accordingly. So um, in one example that I have, one, one client, the husband has a, a large pension, the wife doesn't have, it, have any, and the husband has to transfer some of the money out of his pension into a pension for the wife via a, a pension sharing order. Mm -hmm. And there's another um, client I have where it's a final salary pension. So it doesn't necessarily have a true value now, but it's got a guaranteed income in the future. So there is a calculation taking place via actuaries as to maybe what the value of that is for the wife for now. What happens if you get divorced two or three times? Do you end up having to share your pension with You should probably stop all your married. Yeah. <laughs> I'd advise a prenuptial agreement if you are considering remarrying. Okay, let, prenups is also an interesting one, I guess, because we're talking about all these issues of hidden wealth and um, yeah, various financial technicalities. I mean, should people be looking at prenups anyway if, if there is a lot of money involved before you get married? Yes, definitely. Um, I mean, I would definitely recommend anyone kind of considering when they're formalising their relationship. 
um, to enter into a prenuptial agreement. And for those as well that are already married and they want to adjust their finances to consider possibly a postnuptial agreement. Um, I mean, I'm sure both you and, and your listeners are aware that prenuptial and postnuptial agreements are not currently legally binding in England Wales at the moment. Um, so in order for it to be upheld, the effect of the agreement must be fair. Um, but there's definitely huge benefits of entering into them. So you can record what, what, what might happen in the event the marriage breaks down um, and who's to have premarital assets or family inheritance um, can be safeguarded within the agreement. If they're but not think, legally binding, how are they used? Are they just sort of a guide that, that the courts may consider? Yes. So it's used as a determining factor in obviously the division of assets upon divorce. So even though they're not legally binding, they can be used if they are kind of completed in the right way and they are considered to be fair and reasonable. There's a lot of criteria around prenuptial agreements to ensure that they are um, going to be upheld. Obviously, the case of Radmacher ensured that if they are fulfilling the criteria that they should be upheld, but they aren't legally binding, like I said, in, in England and Wales, but they are a good determining factor as to what should happen upon divorce. You might have to tell us a bit more about the Radmacher case now. The Radmacher case, no problem. So it's a classic. <laughs> I could tell you about Donoghue versus Stevenson, if that's helpful. <laughs> From my uh, law module at uni. Yeah, the snail and the ginger ale bottle. Yeah. <laughs> In the case of Radmacher, the Supreme Court made clear that they would give appropriate weight to the test of the nuptial agreement when deciding how to exercise its discretion um, and that they would base upon criteria for example if it was freely entered into both parties both parties had full appreciation of its implications um, and they'd use that criteria to determine whether or not it was kind of um, fair and reasonable. Okay so what about um, wills on divorce how are they impacted? So the effect of marriage upon your will um, when you marry, any existing will is automatically revoked and cancelled and no longer valid. Um, but if you divorce, that will can still be in force. So, for example, if your marriage is ended by a court order, for example, um, a decree absolute, your will is not um, void or invalid. So any gifts that you make to your former spouse can still take effect. Um, and any kind of um, guardianships that you make within your will will still take effect so it's definitely advisable to review your will post divorce are your business assets included if you own if you're if you run your own business how's that included yes so businesses would be included within obviously the divorce itself so unlike the cash in the bank a business is not a liquid asset you can realize immediately and divide up between you and your ex-partner it doesn't necessarily work like that um but it does, it does get included within the kind of divorce proceedings and the financial settlement. Um, it can be potentially complex dealing with the business on divorce. Um, so the starting point is calculating business's value um, and which point we'd obviously instruct an expert um, where you can assess obviously the size, the nature of shareholdings, etc. cetera. Um, but yes, it does get included. But do it to, does the partner does the other partner have to be a shareholder already or do they get an automatic right to a portion of it? 
And um, not necessarily, it, again, it depends case by case how businesses are dealt with upon divorce. Um, but for example, if a, uh, one party is a shareholder of the business, or if not, they would seek to have other assets on balance of them keeping their shareholding within that business. Again, it depends on what, um, how to apportion that settlement as a whole. Um, but yes, it can be divided as in they can obviously have some shareholdings, but it doesn't necessarily work out like that. Sometimes it can be shared um, through sharing other assets. Charlotte, have you had any uh, cases where there is a business owned jointly by a husband and wife? I keep saying husband and wife, but obviously it can be husband, husband, wife and wife. But uh, a business jointly owned by a couple where it's really only one person's business, but often the spouse is included for tax mm. purposes. So uh, they might be splitting the salary and dividends, which will then only go to one of them post-divorce. Does my question make sense? Yes, it does. Yes, I've had that before previously when obviously uh, a client, for example, can be um, involved in the business. Um, well, both, both parties can be involved in business and also family businesses. So that is definitely an asset that's taken into consideration on the kind of overall settlement um, and whether or not, obviously you'd have to get specialist advice to try and extract one party from that um because usually upon divorce it's it's better for them to be extracted and not for them to remain in business together if assets have to be sold or transferred upon divorce do the usual things like capital gains tax and, and stamp duty apply yes so capital gains tax would definitely be taken into consideration with any transfer um or obviously the sale of any property to release funds that's all taken into consideration as well that's all factored in when preparing what we call a schedule of assets so normally i believe if you transfer assets between husband and wife there isn't a capital gains tax implication but if you're doing that as part of a divorce is that is that different there's been a change in obviously the capital gains rules from April 2020 so it's actually came into effect fairly recently and that means that divorcing or separating couples in the UK will have a short period of time in which to sell their interest in the family home without being hit by currently tax penalties. Um, I believe it was the 6th of April um, so from the 6th of April the spouse who moves out of the family home will only have now a nine-month window in which to sell or transfer their their share um, before CGT applies, I believe before it was um, 18 months. So that's um, the recent changes. So would that be the same for business shares and that sort of thing? Yes, so any, any kind of um, share. Okay, that's interesting. I did not know that. <laughs> so you say you knew everything else we've discussed on the podcast? No, yeah, yeah, obviously. Um, can you tell us about some of your more tricky customers you've come across? Because, I mean, all this does sound complex in itself, but I'm sure there are people who try to get around the rules. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I wouldn't necessarily see clients as tricky customers, but I would definitely say that some clients need a different level of service um, and support than others. I mean, unlike a commercial transaction or a property um, purchase, I'm instructed to deal with clients when they're in one of the most worst and stressful times of their lives. So I think if I've got a particularly vulnerable client that needs to, for me to be a barrier between them 
um, and their ex-partners I will try and absorb as much acrimony as possible um, but then you have on the other end of the scale clients who don't really accept what you're saying and um, will do the complete opposite of what you've advised but I mean all in all in order to deal with those you try and give them um, as much advice as possible and if they're setting unrealistic expectation despite your advice and then are disappointed when you achieve what actually is quite a fair and reasonable settlement for them you just have to know in the knowledge that you've given the best advice that you possibly can and that um, you've tried to kind of use the law to achieve a settlement for them so they can move on with their lives but you just have to yeah try and help them out as much as possible really so it gets stressful uh at times i suppose every every job is quite stressful but i do i do enjoy my job it's not for mark he's at home making music videos all day <laughs> there's quality time with my family and my wife makes me do it is it possible to do all these things without a lawyer i mean i would say no only because i've seen before clients come to me that i've tried to do it themselves and have failed to tick a box that might actually look quite insignificant on the face of it, but can actually mean quite grave circumstances in terms of financial implications later on. So I would say, even if you are um, considering, or, or like you said earlier, on amicable terms with your ex-partner, I would still have a solicitor look over it just to double check because you just can't be too safe. And actually in, in the great scheme of things, you probably end up spending a little to save a lot so I do think it's worth worthwhile um instructing solicitor moving away from the the finances in the divorce is there a default position when children are involved as to whether a mother or father should be looking after them no there's no default position every family is completely different so it would just depend on on their circumstances and is that always the case or was it I'd, did it used to be that uh, that um, children were deemed to be better with mothers than fathers in, in sort of the, the the traditional old style family? I think I mean, especially in clients that I've dealt with, every every family is completely different and unique. So every family setup has its own way of working and um, what's considered normal um, because there is no no there's no normal setup. Um, so I definitely think. Now, especially nowadays, dealing with family law in today's society is completely different, and it, it's completely dependent on the per, on the family setup. Really, what do you um, what do you enjoy most about being a family solicitor? What do I enjoy most? Good question. Um, I think finding a solution and assessment for clients, whether it be through finances or. Um, children kind of contact arrangement issues is finding a solution that works well with everyone um, and obviously trying to do the best for my client and like I said earlier they're going through probably the worst period of their lives when they come to see me so trying to get them out to the other side and in a strong position so they can stand on both feet and move on with their lives. Have you ever had people change their minds? In terms of uh, get back together just abandon the proceedings are oh, you old romantic <laughs> I have um had a client that's come to me after going through the whole uh, very acrimonious divorce reaching a final order and then a couple of days later 
reconciling and then I was instructed to then re reinstigate the proceedings but I've never had a client that's reconciled post post order or post settlement so sorry that client reconciled but then didn't reconcile after yeah so they they went through um years and years of financial proceedings in court and finally reached a settlement and then a couple of days after before the order was made final and sealed they reconciled um and i think they were married for a long time after that and they came and then the client came to me after um several years and said that she she definitely wanted to pursue the divorce they gave it a go yeah exactly sounds expensive for them though yeah Yes. <laughs> um, so I think that covers most of the financial aspects of a marital split. So that's been some useful insights. Um, on a lighter note, um, there is uh, something else we ask all our guests to take part in. Uh, it's a quick fire round looking at how they manage their own finances. So we've got four questions we wanted to fire at you, if that's mm-hmm. all right. Yeah, of course. Josh, did you want to do the first one? Sure. What's the best advice you've been given about money, Charlotte? Um, I mean, it's not the most unique piece of advice, but it has proved me um, proved to be the most invaluable. And that's to save um, as much each month as possible and to take advantage of ISAs. Um, and my dad also taught me to kind of cut my cloth accordingly, which has been probably the best piece of advice. But whether or not it's worked in reality is another thing. Fantastic. What does that mean? Cut work? cut my cloth accordingly so basically means don't spend what i don't have really. oh, I see. good advice and um, are you a saver yeah. or a spender that probably answers that question yeah i think i think i'm a good balance of both i'd say definitely in the last month being in lockdown i would definitely consider myself a saver but only by default um but may, month by month the scales might shift slightly either way <laughs> but, yeah. i think a lot of people are realizing in lockdown that they don't necessarily need all the material items that they spend money on normally. Mm, it doesn't mean they won't spend when they go back, but they might alter their spending habits a bit. Yes, it's definitely interesting to see that. Yeah. So when you do spend, do you, do you use cash or card? Card, 100%. I can't even remember the last time I had cash on me. Um, so, yeah, definitely contactless user. It's because we're homeschooling our children at the moment and their teachers want us to teach about money and they're giving us lesson plans to show them coins and we're looking around the house and I, I haven't seen a coin in ages. Is it just notes in your house? <laughs> just notes and contactless cards <laughs> and Bitcoin. Um, what would you do if you won the lottery? I think I would um, clear any debts and clear my friend's student loans and, and any debts nice. they had. Yeah. How many? And which? Then, how many student loans would you clear? The ni- the nice ones. So hopefully, <laughs> the ones that hopefully they're listening. Listened to, yeah. <laughs> the ones that listen. Um, and help family out. I think yeah, and and then be really sensible after and invest. But also, I think in light of where we are at the moment, I'd probably look to to donate to charitable causes for um, driving social change to probably get involved in that way as well. Lovely. And finally, where where can we find out a bit more about Goodman Derrick? So if you follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter, um, or just our website, there's lots of helpful information on, on our website, the landing page. Um, and I know that other departments, not just family, the family department are uh, obviously happy to give out advice about 
the current pan pandemic and, and how we can help. So Charlotte, thank you very much for joining us. That's all we have time for. Thanks for having me. Please remember, anything discussed in this programme should not be viewed as financial advice. But if you do need support, please contact me at mark, M-A-R-C, at cavendishcontent.com or visit the Orchard Practice website at www.topfs.co.uk. You can also find us on Twitter at InforAPennyPod1, at Mark Schoffman and at Josh Gersler. If you'd like to leave us feedback, there's a link in the show notes telling you how to do that. We really appreciate any comments you provide. And do post any financial issues you'd like us to cover. And thank you for being... In for a penny. Very Fantastic. good. What a pray. Okay. <laughs> <laughs>